to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. I am your host, Dr. Weta L. Brown. I inspire and promote movement. I explain how running adds to life from a mental wholeness aspect, how obstacles can be overcome in life to make it to your finish line. Welcome to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast, episode 18. In March, I would normally be skiing somewhere, so I decided to bring the mountain to my podcast. Skiing and outdoor sports is a great form of movement. I have the co-founders of Epic Life Outdoors, which I mentioned in my last podcast, Vanone Wilkins and Leon Henderson. Let me tell you a little bit about both of them. Fanon Wilkins hails from Los Angeles, California. He is currently the Associate Professor of History and American Studies in the Graduate School Global Studies at the Shisha University in Koti, Japan. He is a proud graduate of Morehouse College. He holds a Master's Degree in History from Syracuse University and a PhD in History from New York University. His research and scholarship is concerned with the global contours of Black freedom movement in the 1960s and Black expressive culture. Wilkins is the father of two, an outdoor adventurist and a backcountry snowboarder. He is the co-founder of Epic Life Outdoors, an outdoor adventure company devoted to the unique travel experiences off the beaten path. Leon Henderson was born in the Motor City of Detroit, but raised in Akron, Ohio, the land of funk. He was an athlete from the time he could walk. He fell in love with football, my favorite spectator sport. He graduated high school and joined the Army, where order, discipline, and attention to detail helped him come into his own as an adult in search of purpose and direction. His athletic abilities landed him a spot on the Army boxing team, but it was the accounting department where he found his professional calling. After four years in the military, he went on to obtain a BS in engineering at the University of Akron. Civic-minded and deeply committed to the city of Akron, Henderson joined the fire department as a paramedic and later went on to become an officer in the Department of Public Safety. After two decades of service, Henderson was promoted to the Chief Officer for Safety Communications, Information Technology. He has received numerous awards for his public service and commitment to the city. With an unquenchable thirst for travel and a deep and abiding need for adventure, Leon has done it all raced motorcycles, obtained his rescue safety diver certification, ran seven marathons, and snowboarded across the United States, South America, Japan, Canada, the French Alps, just to name a few. As a holistic health practitioner, he has completed month-long retreats in the Brazilian Amazon rainforest and traveled extensively in South America and the Caribbean. Epic Life was founded in 2014, again by Fanon and Leon, following an amazing snowboarding trip to Chile the previous year. After spending 
significant time in the North American Rockies and South America, Fanon and Leon decided to bring some of their closest friends to the powder fields of Hokkaido, Japan. What began as a modest ski snowboard tour for a couple dozen people quickly morphed into nearly a hundred adventures. First trip to Nosoko, Japan in 2014. It was epic from the beginning and has grown exponentially ever since. Via social media and word of mouth, Fanon and Leon have taken hundreds of epic lifers to Japan to experience its unparalleled pattern and refined Japanese hospitality. Although their roots are in the mountains, their spirits are driven by a profound sense of adventure and global exploration and community. They not only travel together, but they live to party even harder. I can attest to that. There's nothing like an epic life happy hour or a late night gathering during our fun-filled trips. The bridge in Paris will be hard to beat, but I can imagine 2022 will be something even greater. Welcome to the show, guys. All right. So welcome again to Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. What made you guys start Epic Life? Well, I'll just say that Epic Life sort of evolved organically from a real deep interest in snowboarding, skiing, and being engaged in adventure sports, you know, around the world. And in 2013, we began a conversation, or at least I initiated a call out to folks on Facebook asking or inviting or trying to gauge interest in terms of people's desire to come to Japan to snowboard and ski. And it was during that period that Leon reached out to me and we began to have a conversation about the process. And he was very enthusiastic about coming on the trip and also wanted to lend his services and his expertise in terms of travel and the kind of experience that he had. He wanted to lend that and ask if I would, you know, if I were interested in some assistance in that area. And I was absolutely totally open and wanted to do that. And so we basically planned a trip to Japan in 2014. And that was the genesis of Epic Life. And we had a really good following of folks and people, you know, we thought initially we wanted to get maybe 20 to 25 people. I thought if I could get 25 people to come on this trip, it would be phenomenal. I was inspired by a trip that I had gone to Chile just before that. And I think it was about 20 of us on that trip. So I thought, maybe if I can get 20, 25 people, that would be kind of cool, you know. And Leon, incidentally, had already been to Chile several times before I even went. So he had experience on that end, too. So it just kind of, that's the genesis from my perspective, but I'll let him add. So you want to go into how we first met before we even, like, planned our first trip to Japan? Sure. Yeah. So were we at Steamboat when we first met? On the slopes. I think we were at, yeah, we were at Steamboat when we kind of initially met in 2011. Yep. So, because I had been hearing about this brother that lives in Japan that had like these funky snowboards. (laughs) I was like, okay. I said, man, I said, they said this dude got like something like he has like a surfboard on snow. And I said, word? I said, 
can he turn on the thing? I was thinking it was one of those like power boards. And they said, yeah, this, they said, this brother gets down. So we happen to be, we, you know how it is when you're on the slopes and with NBS, National Brother of the Spears. So it was several groups that actually emerged into one group. And all of a sudden there was like for three amigos that was just kind of leading the way. So we were like parallel with each other. Then I started following this trail. Then he started following mine. Then I forget, Bruce Thompson was the third person that was in that group. Then all of a sudden we stopped because we had to wait for everybody else. Then we started introducing ourselves. Everybody was all geared up. So he said, yeah, yeah, I'm Fanon. I said, oh, man, I see you that brother from Japan, right? And he said, yeah, yeah. So that's the introduction we had on the slopes, just out there, just flowing. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, that was it. I remember we were riding. You had on that white, those white, (laughs) (laughs) white and grayish pants. Yeah. Bruce was like a local. Yes. Bruce is a brother who's a local who lived in Steamboat. He lived in Glenwood Springs, but Steamboat was his mountain. Right, that was his mountain. And he could ride. I'll never forget that. He was jumping and hitting clips and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, okay, all right. You know, yeah, that's funny. I didn't realize that you had been hearing about these funny snowboards. (laughs) (laughs) Your trip in Chile, how was that organized? I mean, that was before Epic Like, but was it advanced backcountry? It was organized by... Kim King. Kim King and Nadine Quinlan. I think that's Nadine's last name. And they are from the Southern Snow Seekers. In Atlanta. In Atlanta. So what happened was I had already been to Chile a few times before that trip. So Kim King had reached out to me saying, hey, do I want to go on it? You know, like be a partner with her on the trip. And I said, well, I was studying for a promotional examination at the time. I said, I don't know if I can actually make it happen, but I can basically give you all the information that you would actually, as far as itinerary, I can help you with that. Because I basically let her know I stayed like downtown Santiago and I stayed there on the front end and then went from there, you know, went up to like Valley Nevado. And then from Valley Nevado, you can actually go to, I went to Argentina because I was on a uh, trip with Powder Quest and we went from Chile to the Andes. You're literally in the Andes Mountains when you're in Valley Nevado, where you can look down and look at the whole city of Santiago and see like this smog. So, I mean, what was interesting for me was it was before even Valley Nevado even became popular. I was basically out there like by myself most of the time, just having a ball because nobody, usually it would be Brazilians that would be going to Chile. And they were like really not advanced skiers and snowboarders. So they would go to the first chair and just kind of work their way back down. But to go two chairs up and to go to T-Bar, nobody was doing really backcountry area. So I was just having fun back there. It's like your own private playground. Mm-hmm. And so with me having that institutional knowledge, so Kim reached out to me. And I didn't know Fanon had went on that trip. Because, like I said, I couldn't go on the trip, and Kim King ended up not going on the trip. Yeah, yeah, well, I was so you guys were basically on your, on your Kim, Yeah, you were on your own. Kim couldn't go. This is the thing. Kim kind of recruited me onto the trip, which was interesting, and I didn't even know that Leon had really. I knew later that he had actually given them some insight and some pointers on the itinerary, and we actually pretty much did that itinerary. That was the itinerary that we actually stayed in Santiago on the back end and went straight there. But 
yeah, she couldn't go for some health reasons and I ended up making that trip. And that's when I met, well, several people who ended up coming to Japan. Was it hard to go from an idea to an actual business plan, epic life? So, yes, because I'm going to tell you why. We literally thought it was going to be just, we were going to be elated if we had 25 people to go on this trip. And when it started snowballing to like everybody sending me money from all over the place to over 100 people, that's when stuff got real. That's when you had to have, you know, organizational management. Then you had to actually look at, okay, the accounting aspect of it, looking at logistics. So that's where it got tricky. So yes, that's where I use like a lot of my work experience to try to make the bridge that gap. And then the contacts we made was all from Fanon, you know, basically giving me the names to reach out to because he had already been in the Seiko. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, that's why I'm saying it had a kind of organic dimension because it's one thing to sort of go into a business, say, hey, I want to start a travel business. You know what I mean? And I'm going to start a travel business. I'm going to get a social media platform and I'm going to, you know, start recruiting and see what I can do. You know, this is 2013 or so. So again, as we know, stuff has been evolving very, very quickly. You know, there's been this whole movement amongst, or at least this presence in terms of Black folks traveling, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, at that time, it was like, one, we were being very, very modest and pretty aspirational. We were like, hey, man, if we can get 25 people to commit to come to Japan and ski and snowboard, that's a, that's a pretty nice trip. And again, I had the Chile reference as an international trip you know, for skiing and snowboarding as a kind of reference. And that actually felt like a pretty solid trip. You know, we were on one bus. Our bus broke down, like going and coming (laughs) from our location. We had a major injury. We had somebody that had to be airlifted, you know, out after breaking their leg, you know, like the first day on the mountain. So I saw like And I saw some of the ups and downs and challenges that come when you got 25 people that you're responsible for in a foreign country and you are trying to get from A to B to C and you're trying to deal with everybody's wants and needs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I was like, man, if I can do this, you know, this would be phenomenal. The other thing that was also in the back of my mind and part of why I did it was I was on sabbatical. I'm a university professor here in Japan at Doshish University, but at the time I was on sabbatical at Princeton in New Jersey. And so I was there for the year. But I also, my visa situation in Japan, even though I was going to be away for a year, I still had to return to Japan within a six-month period because of my residence card visa situation. And then I had to come in and go out. So anyway, the planning also revolved around some of that. I had the time. I was stateside. I could communicate with people, you know, and so forth. So that was another part of it. So did you guys do a lot of marketing or was it word of mouth from people who had? No marketing whatsoever. We put it out there on Facebook and all of a sudden it just kind of blossomed from there. Then we basically started and WhatsApp started coming to becoming popular also. So that was a communique. But we leaned on the known. Yeah, you're moving too fast, brother. You're okay, all right. Talk to, all right. All right. Oh, Back up. Man. No but no WhatsApp really yet. WhatsApp did kind of come. So remember the first trip, people were using Viber. Oh, yes. I don't, I don't even know anything about yes. that. Yes. <laughs> and then, 
you know, we in WhatsApp that came into existence. So that's what I'm trying to say. That's the interesting thing about this period, right? Like literally social media and certain platforms. Like, for example, in 2005, I was in Brazil and I got introduced mm-hmm. to Skype. <laughs> okay. Nobody knew what Skype was. Now, it's when you get outside and travel, people are trying to communicate cheaply, and you go to a place like Brazil and so forth, this is where you learn about all kind of stuff that you don't know about, right? And so I introduced to Skype, and so I was using Skype long before a lot of people in the U.S. was because it wasn't really a necessity, right? And so anyway, it's just funny, like, so yeah, WhatsApp kind of became a reality in the second wave, but... Viber was what we were trying to use to connect with for that first trip. So, Fanoni, would you living in Japan? Had you been to Niseko a number of times before this first epic trip to ski and board? A board. Yes. When I initially got to Japan, I had a buddy, actually a woman by the name of Lisa Yoniyama, who is a professor at UC San Diego. She's a colleague of one of my best friends. I went to graduate school with Danny Widener at UC San Diego. And when I was headed to Japan, Danny was like, hey, man, I need to connect you with Lisa. I think she's from the city that you're going to, which is Kyoto. And so we connected and she was just gave me a lot of insight about Kyoto and moving here. And then she connected me with her cousin, this guy named Ty. And Ty was a snowboarder and skater and just real cool dude. And so he and I connected when I got to Japan. And so we would go snowboarding together. But our snowboarding was largely, it was all, the furthest we went was to the Nagano area. And we never went to Niseko, but we would go to Gifu and some of these sort of local mountains. And we would drive. It'd be like four-hour drives, five-hour drives from Kyoto. And then I decided I wanted to tie it up, marrying, start having kids. And we kind of faded going in different directions. And so I was still exploring my snowboarding a lot. And so then I decided I wanted to go to Niseko. I'd heard about Niseko. And let me just back up, too, because this is interesting. Like, I got into snowboarding around 2003 or four. I hadn't been snowboarding in a long time. And I got into it because I went on a date with my ex, surprised me and took me to Killington, Vermont. Nice, nice date. Yeah, yeah. And I got into it like, you know, I was falling, getting jacked up, rolling down the mountain. But I had some moments of like feeling it and catching it and I liked it. So anyway, when I was preparing, when I got the opportunity to come to Japan, Outside Magazine literally had a front cover. They had a thing that was talking about outdoor sports and winter sports. And they had an article where they were talking about Japan. And they said, Japan, never forget, they said that Japan is the size of California, but it has five times more ski resorts than all of North America. That includes Canada. <laughs> that includes the U.S., right? Wow, I know that. And I was like, what? You know, and they like, and you should also know that 70% of Japan is uninhabitable because it's mountains. But the hmm. Japanese Alps are massive, right? And then they talked about, but there's a lot of resorts, you know, really tiny resorts that dot the islands, but they aren't. So there's been this long standing kind of ski culture and snowboard culture in Japan. And then they talked about this place, Niseko, and it had this super light powder. This is before, literally before I actually stepped foot in Japan. And I got this magazine after purchasing my first Burton Cruiser board 
setup. <laughs> so I had a Burton Cruiser, boot, bindings, everything for like three hundred and fifty dollars or something like that. I got the whole thing. You know, what I mean? like, <laughs> you know, and so I was ready for Japan. You know what I mean? When it was time, I was like, yo, I'm about to go to Japan. And so I had this vision of I knew more about it. When I kept connected with Ty, I used to always ask him about it. Had he been in the Seiko? He was like, nah, I've never been there. And he's from Japan. He's Japanese. Okay. So how far are you actually from the Seiko? Well, that's another funny, interesting thing. So the Seiko, it's on the upper island in the yeah. Kaido region. So I have to go to kind of go over water, fly up there. But it's only about an hour and a half flight. But... It literally takes me door to door from the time I leave my door to the time I arrive at my hotel in Niseko. It takes me about 10 hours. 10 hours. Yeah. So, which is interesting because I'm inland, right? And mm-hmm. folks can fly from the East Coast or even the Midwest or from the West Coast and fly to Tokyo in 10 hours, right? 10 to 12 hours. And you have the other section, but the point is, is that even for me, and this is part of why Ty hadn't really been to Niseko, because even for Japanese, it's a nice little commitment, you know what I mean, time-wise. So I'm not far in terms of flight, but when it comes to here, you know, I have to get the train to the airport. I got to get there a couple hours ahead of time, and then I got to check in, and then I got to get the flight. And then when I get off the flight, I got to, in Sapporo Airport in Hokkaido, then I got to wait for my bus. And then I got to... Okay two and a half hour, three hour journey on the bus to the actual Niseko. So that's what I'm saying. Door to door, it still takes about two hours. Long trip. So how did you guys made you decide to do a trip like every other year? How did that progress? A big trip? Well, Fanon is a professor. I am a firefighter for my city. So with us having full-time jobs, it was never going to be a full-time like travel agency. We wanted to do something kind of keep people excited where it would be something like biannual. And then we would add dimensions to it as far as like a summer retreat, something to that effect. But as far as the time that it would take to actually make a trip happen, like a Niseko trip, the work that we have to do pre-planning, bidding on resorts and basically looking at transfers, setting up logistics from there and from, that takes about a four to five month process. So, okay. you know, we start collecting money, like I would say eight months out from the actual trip departure. But all the things that we have to do pre-planning, those are the things that just take so much time and effort on our behalf. From 14 to 16 to 18 to 20, like how did you progress as far as marketing or is it just still word of mouth or... So it was still word of mouth, but what we had to our, as an asset for us, was, you know, give the people what they want. And our customer satisfaction and our excellence, that basically promoted people that basically promoted to other people. So like our second trip to Japan, we did even less, you know, broadcasting. People were just coming to us from all over the place. You know, we had people from England even reaching out to us from UK, basically being a part, wanting to be a part of this trip because they heard about how much fun we had. And, you know, these just two brothers out here just doing it, you know. And, you know, what I really admired about our trips, how we were able to add something extra to each one of them. 
when you have like that 1999 album or you have that thriller album like Michael Jackson and you're trying to outdo that, you can never outdo that. But what we've been fortunate enough is to have the energy of the people that come as a collective group and to bring that fire. So we've actually had that. And one of the coolest things that we had ever done was we had our own soul plane. So that was just a trip for the masses looking at that footage. I was looking at the raw footage the other day from just the line of us, just the sea of blackness, like through the airport. I mean, it was just never been done before. And even the people there in Sapporo and even in the Seiko, when we get there from our contacts, they love doing business with Fanon and myself and with Epic Life Travel because nobody brings a group of people like we bring them. There's never been a group bigger than the trips that we brought to the Seiko, never been done before. That's just not Black people. That's white, Black, everything. That's what Epic Life has done. I missed the soul plane. I was late on that trip. Oh, yeah, you missed that joint. So Fanon can actually feel you from his perspective, what it's take from like integration from our trips. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like I said, it's been an organic development. You know, it's been a plane that we've been building as we've flown it. You know what I mean? Like it's literally, and let me just say the beautiful thing about this is that it came from a place of passion Mm -hmm. by two people who actually do this. So we were actually, we are snowboarders, you know what I mean? And we travel and go places to snowboard. Like we search for good snow around the world. And so all we did was literally take what we like to do and offer it up as, hey, let's organize and let's put something together for folks and see if they want to do it. And people got into it. And so the beauty and the challenge is that, you know, this is what we love to do. So it's not like it's difficult or it's work or whatever. It's actually what we're, you know, sort of passionate about. The other thing is that, again, we got into this to sort of figure out, okay, how can we like offset our trip and, you know, make this happen? But this was never like a money grab. Like it was never like, okay, we're about to get in this business. We're about to start making paper, man. You know what I mean? We're about to start, you know, getting these numbers up. You know, it never was like that. It literally was like, you know, let's see if we can get a few, you know, 20 people. And then that just snowballed and snowballed and snowballed. And that's allowed us to maintain a high level of quality because it's like, this is, we want to be able to do things that reflect how we would like to travel, you know, and how we like to be in the world. And so that's a wonderful thing. The other thing is that we've benefited tremendously by coming to Japan. You know, Japan is a place where hospitality is number one you know, where the customer is always right, or where they even have a saying in Japanese, the customer is God. You know? okay. And so we have both benefited from our experience with that, both behind the scenes and when we have our folks, you know, like there. And it's allowed us to sort of set a standard for ourselves in terms of how we want to operate as a business and how we want to treat the folks that come on our trips. And so that translated into you know, we just had a recent trip that we can maybe get into a little later about, you know, to Val Thorens and to Paris, France. And that's also been a tremendous benefit of doing the work we, you know, initially started in Japan. And also the people connections that we've been able to bring together where they can break into these clusters and people that they never would have met unless they were on our trips. And you get a chance to intimately know somebody. You can have be a friend for life. And that's what we really love watching, how relationships evolve. 
like they can have a BFF or they can break off and do their own trips throughout the year because you know what? They vibe so well on our trip and they got along. I mean, it's just amazing watching the organic relationships even just blossom. Yeah, I mean, lots of people like go on their own, do their own thing, you know, and still shout out Epic Life is what kind of connected and began their friendships. And that's really, again, that's ultimately what this has been about, you know, community. You know, how do you sort of establish and sustain community? So many of us are kind of atomized and sort of broke off into our own silos. And, you know, we work from home, we work on the road, we work in all kinds of different contexts. And social media, of course, has been huge in terms of, you know, connecting people. But people still yearn as human beings. We still yearn for that physical connection, that physical contact. And our trips being 10 days in length or, you know, a week, a bracketed week where you got two weekends and, you know, the first weekend to kind of travel and get situated and then a whole another five days and then or six days and then a travel day home. It gives people a good chance to kind of really hang out, you know, when you're living and staying with somebody over a course of a week, there's opportunity to really bond and connect. And so that's been a, one of the hallmarks and one of the wonderful things about what we've been able to do. You know, another aspect of it as well was when you were traveling, I'm sure, Ms. Brown, you had been traveling on your own before you kind of met the group and Fanona has done the same thing. And I did the same thing when I basically got my wings and started just flowing. I started going all around the world in the year 2000 because I was able to have the resources for the discretionary income to make those things happen. And there was nobody but me on that plane that looked like me, that moved like me. So what we were able to do was harness all of that. So now when people go on an epic life trip, it's people that look like them, move like them, and you're not alone because you're not just like, you know what, I'm not an anomaly. I'm part of this big collective organization. Mm-hmm. And I'll be, and it was funny, you know, it's interesting because Epic Life has been wonderful and a challenge, right, for me because living here in Japan, I mean, I, you know, Niseko is my backyard, my home mount. But because I have been doing these trips over the years, I still go every year. I'll be going this year, you know. Okay. And so one of the things is that it's so different. <laughs> that you I can go by yourself. Yeah. Now because I know, I could be here 230 people deep, you know, and having happy hours. And I'm like, I literally go into the spaces where we party and we do things. And it's just a whole different vibe. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm like just there, you know, okay. You know what I mean? And so, but again, I love the mountains and the powder and all that. So I quickly get over it, but it's a yeah, not the same, but yeah, it's not the same, man. When you know how this place can be when you got your folks with you. Have y'all had any significant growing pains or anything logistically that made you change the way you operate over the years? <laughs> well, just like we love our people, but our people can be a little persnickety at times, you know. And with that being the case, you know, you literally got just two brothers out here. Like I said, it's not a money grab. So it's not like you're paying us a full service concierge to basically be there at your beck and call. And because we want to enjoy the trip as well. But Mm -hmm. I tell you, we can actually knock on wood for the most part because of how we've been able to do business and build the relationships with management at some of the hotels that we stay at or dealing with transfers. You know, we've been able to solve everything at the lowest level possible where it never was anything that had been escalated beyond our control. 
it, everything's been in our span of control. And if we can fix it, we fix it at that level. And we all, like I say, again, the customer is always right at the end of the day. And we're going to try to make them whole on whatever we actually did. Okay. Yeah, we've had, you know, you always, when you're doing big trips, logistical matters, you're always going to have what they call, it's called a law of unforeseen circumstances. You Tell know? them about the first trip that we took to Nome. And there was a storm of the century that oh happened God. in Japan. I didn't get my gear. I had to wear Asanya's pants and I had to borrow a coat from, I'm serious. I had to wear Asanya Brown's pants, her snowboard pants. And I had to wear this guy Henry's coat that he gave me. And I didn't, all my gear was stuck in Tokyo trying to get to Naseko. Let me tell you. So just here's the word thing. So in planning this trip, we all travel with our gear, right? A big part of the culture in terms of snowboarding. We have our own skis. We have our own boards. We have our own everything. And, you know, you have it for a reason because it's dear and personal to you. It's what you know the best makes you the best, right? So again, you're traveling international. Some people choose to rent things. But most of us would prefer to have our own gear, particularly for a trip of this magnitude. And so one of the things that we put in place and one of the beautiful things about Japan is that Japan offers very inexpensive luggage travel. They support you sending luggage all over the country at a very cheap rate. And so the initial trip, we wanted to spend several days in Tokyo before coming to Niseko, and this is 2014. Well, I had already told everyone that we we're going to, you know, when you fly into Tokyo, you're going to then go and you're going to basically send your luggage ahead of time from Tokyo to Niseko. It's only going to cost you about 2,000 yen, 2,500 bucks, $25, and you can pretty much send it to Niseko and it'll be waiting for you when you get to the hotel. I'd always done that. And every night, without fail, my stuff was sitting at the hotel waiting for me. Well, we get to Tokyo, and Tokyo gets hit with the biggest snowstorm it had ever been hit with in 40 years. Wow. So I'd already told everybody this. People that already, you know, get to the airport and do exactly what I say. They send the stuff, you know, and so forth, myself included. And then when we get to Niseko, our luggage is delayed. None of our stuff is there. Some people, Nothing. but a lot of people's stuff didn't. Mm-hmm. And so here I am now trying to explain, you know, like, <laughs> why stuff isn't here. It's an act of nature. You had no control over it. But... control over that. You know, that's exactly it. And so, but the beautiful thing is that I was also a victim of it. So it wasn't, <laughs> like, you know, it wasn't like I had my luggage. And I told everybody else to do something. No, I was the same. So like Leon said, here we are leaders and we got Mitch Matt outfits on. I had to rent a board and rent all this stuff, you know, just to be a participant the first day. But it was, again, it was a learning. It's one of those kind of things. You just learn on the fly. And it's a challenge. So when you got a lot of bells and whistles, when you got a lot of moving parts, you have to anticipate and just be prepared, you know, for challenges, like things that you just didn't expect, you know, logistical issues, people missing a taxi or missing a bus transfer or people's flights been delayed. Our first trip, people's, we had a lot of people because of that storm, flights were delayed from the East Coast. Mm -hmm. Also had people who got hit with storms on the East Coast for other trips and they couldn't get out the day they were supposed to get out. So then the transfer they were supposed to get to get to 
you know, they missed that. So then we got to be on the phone coordinating. We got to be talking to them sort of like, okay, well, this is what you got to do, et cetera, et cetera. And when you got hundreds of people, it becomes a lot, you know, especially if you got five, six, seven dozen people who are stranded or trying to figure their way through something. But the lesson we did learn was promoting travel insurance. Yes. Yeah. Travel insurance. And the other thing is just also trying and working to be an oasis of calm. Okay, you mm-hmm. can't be a frantic, frenetic person in this business. You can't be a, you know, sky is falling kind of person. You got to really move with a level of optimism, openness, and preparation for challenges. Because if you aren't prepared in that way, you're going to suffer significantly. And so luckily, Leon being in the first responder and being in the firefighting business and public safety business, you know, me as an academic, but also just as a yoga practitioner and just a person that really can be that oasis of calm and organization in times of crisis. 2018 was my first year joining you guys. And I know you went to Thailand, Tokyo, then to the mountain. Mm-hmm. Was that the first like three leg trip or in 16, did you guys just do Tokyo, then the Seiko or? So that 2018 was our first multi-country trip, wasn't it? So what we do, we love getting feedback from our trips. And the feedback that we get, we try to basically incorporate that into our upcoming trip. So what people had requested was to go somewhere where it was warm, where it was a tropical destination, where they can just enjoy and let their hair down. So we decided on actually making that trip to Thailand. And that Thailand trip, and it was my first time ever going to Thailand, and it was the most amazing trip for me ever. We ran out to a four. Didn't you go, the first time was before 2018. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So, so 2016, yes. And but 2018 was the year we had just the funky houses. Mm. So we were able to get a house in the mountains that had the infinity pool, that overlooked the ocean, and we had one right down on the ocean. And we had a total, what, 40 people, about 20 people in each house. And we had activities from trekking, we did from rain scooters to elephant sanctuaries, lion sanctuaries. We just did it all. And it was the most amazing trip ever. And the energy that people brought. And interesting, too, is that a good chunk, more than probably about half of that trip, with folks who came who weren't even going on the, the Seiko portion. They were just so interested in the community and the opportunity to connect with folks in our group. They weren't skiers and snowboarders, but they came to on the Thailand portion and so forth. So that was also a, a real cool thing is that even if you don't ski or snowboard, but you want to hang out and be connected to a community of folks traveling at a particular time, this was an option for you. And so that really worked out. And it was great to have people who were not necessarily going to be on the other part, but that we're going to participate here and then and vice versa. So it worked out well. That's true. I hate I missed it. I missed all the nun skiers. I had to see my Eagles win the Super Bowl and see my girl get married. <laughs> so, so I missed that. It's funny because we had a client who reached out to us and asked us if they could actually, if we could help facilitate them watch the Super Bowl while they were on the airplane. They wanted to know if that would be possible. <laughs> I looked into it. I delayed my flight and spent a whole bunch of money. I looked into it, but I, I couldn't get a definite guarantee. So I was like, I can't, I can't do it. You know, that was you, though. You know, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> <Stay back. laughs> 
You're funny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice one. <laughs> How long have you guys been boarding? And did you ever ski or did you just go straight to boarding? So for me, what's interesting about my story, I bought skis and snowboards at an expo. I bought both because I had never been to either one. Guys that I've been working with for years have been telling me that, you know, you got to come to this organization called NBS. And I'm like, whatever, whatever. So after 10-year hiatus, Jerry Eli, after church one Sunday, he said, yo, dude, he said, you still got all that equipment you bought at that expo? I said, yeah. He said, okay, after church, we're going to our local mountain. We're going to use it. And I'm like, okay, cool. So this was in 2000. So we went to the local Dirty Hill, Brandywine, Boston Mill Ski Resort. And I mean, I was a skier. So I'm skiing and he taught me how to ski. And it was good. But now let me back up. So what got me into needing that adrenaline rush? I used to be a star boy. The star boys was a motorcycle organization that we basically did stunts and we raced and we basically was on the circuit. So I was a part of a group of like 10 guys. And so I was in a wheelie contest in Niles and I had a really, really bad fall. So I basically flipped over like about 110 miles an hour. So I had rode and rode and rode and rode. And then I was like, you know what? After that accident, I was able to get up. God was able to bless me. I literally woke up just with some road rash, but I didn't have a broken mm -hmm. bone, nothing. I mean, I literally walked away from that accident, just, you know, total bite. And so I gave up motorcycle riding for like a 10-year hiatus. I didn't ride for 10 years. So during this time of this lost decade, I just still needed that adrenaline rush. And that's when Jerry basically met me at the right time at church and got me to go to that to the mountain. And skiing was cool. I enjoyed it, but I still didn't get that rush that I got when I rode motorcycle. I just didn't feel that natural feel. So it just so happened that I was with our local ski group, Esprit Ski Club, and I'm good with Esprit. And I go on the first trip, you know, my first like day tour, we go to New York, we go to Holiday Valley. And I'm like, this is incredible. This is a big, big mountain. I'm thinking I'm like big time now. And then the people there at Esprit Ski Club was like, you know what? Nah, you got to go to the summit out west. And I'm like, all right, cool, cool. So I take my first trip out west. It was that 2002 trip and we were at Vail. And what's interesting, I had... That was my first trip, too. So, so that was so, my first, that was first trip. Comment. And what I didn't realize, I didn't know a soul. I was by myself. I rented a car from Denver. I noticed what I said. I rented a car. So I had a Pontiac <laughs> Grand Prix. I had this Grand Prix on the road, and I'm like just driving. I'm getting lost. Remember those old TomTom -Tom GPSs before you had the cell phone GPS? That TomTom mm -hmm. -Tom GPS got me lost. I'm in the White Forest Mountain. I hit a big <laughs> rock and an oil drips out the car, transmission oh. shot, and I'm stranded <laughs> and no oh. sales service. <laughs> and oh. so I'm literally just lost. So that was my first indoctrination of the MBS. And when I got there, I was like just happy just to be there. And I'm like seeing all these brothers and sisters. I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And so let me give credit to MBS because if it wasn't for MBS, it would not be an epic ski 
or, you know, epic life travel because of the fact that so many people we met as part of our network helped incorporate us into epic life. So I want to give homage to the National Brotherhood of Skiers. So on one of my day trips, you know, after like three years of skiing, it's my furthest another day trip. Now I'm a veteran in the ski club. Now I got like four years of seniority. <laughs> so now there's this girl on the bus. Her name is Alexandria. And I'm like, okay, now she's a snowboarder, you know, she looks like Jennifer Beale. And I'm like, all right, cool, you know. And I started talking to her. So I say, hey, can I sit here? She said, yeah, but, you know, I'll be honest with you, I don't talk to skiers. And I'm like, oh, you don't? And she said, nah, I don't. And I said, but I got a snowboard. She said, you got a snowboard? I said, yeah, it's at home. It's in the wrapper. I've never used it. She said, bring it on our next trip next week, and I'll teach you how to use it. Alexandria was the reason why I started snowboarding. And okay. from that first snowboard trip that I was on and when I started, when the light bulb came on, when I started leaking turns, I never looked back at skis ever again. So that's that exhilaration that I felt where I was looking at like a master artist when I can go back and look at my lines and feel that feel and that exuberance. That's what's my indoctrination in the snowboarding. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the question is, you know, did I start off skiing or whatever? Technically, yes. <laughs> My first time skiing was in 1986. Okay. And I grew up, I'm from Los Angeles, California. And one of my best friends, I'm at the time, my boy Maverick, who's still one of my closest friends to this day, he was a skier. And so he was like, you should tell us about going skiing. This is when we were in high school. And so we decided we were going to go skiing one day. And we were going to ditch school and go skiing. And so we did. We ditched school. And my boy, Stanley, you know, in his dad's work van, we drove from L.A. to Big Bear. And let me explain. Like, I'm at 16, and there's no seats in the back. It's like a straight work van, like metal. And mm -hmm. we're driving. I'm in the back. And we're, like, weaving up into the mountains. And we're going. Now, mind you, I ditched school. So I had to go and like, you know, I had this one jacket. I had one big jacket, but you know, growing up in LA, you don't need big coats. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was like, it was a cloth, cotton, you know, it wasn't even. <laughs> so we're driving. And so I discover on the way up that I need to get some gloves. So we stop at a Circle K. <laughs> and, um, I buy these gloves. I mean, again, they were probably three, four dollars, six dollars. It was the cheapest gloves I could find. And my man was like, okay, you got to get some gloves, man. So I got <laughs> this is the beauty of like, you know, just being green, being young and just with all the energy. And I had on a pair of Levi jeans, you know, wow. from this flight, you know, this cotton jacket. And I had these gloves that I bought mm -hmm. from Circle K. From Circle K. And I had a beanie. I just had a beanie. And so we said, you know, we're going skiing. So we go up there, man. And so, you know, when you're young, you think you could do anything. So my boy's like, all right, man, so now he had grew up skiing. I mean, he just threw hat. I'll never forget. Mav had his red, beautiful, like, red jacket, you know, like, ski jacket. He had a sweater. He had one of those nice ski sweaters. You know, he had his goggles. He had the turtleneck underneath. He was looking tight. And so, man, we get up there. And so he's just like, man, follow me. I'm going to show you how to ski. And so, you know, literally, I ain't never been on a pair of skis. And I'm following this dude. And me and my man Stanley, we're both following him. And I mean, we are just yard selling down the mountain. I mean, <laughs> you know, I tell you, coming down that mountain, I mean, flying, just 
falling and everything. But your friend knew how to ski and he was falling down the mountain. You know, he couldn't even tell us how to pizza. He just, (laughs) you know, it was like, but we're not really listening either because we got this, our manhood is on the line. So I'm just tearing myself up. And I remember my fingers got so cold and I was about to cry. Like I remember because I was like, they was hurting so much. And we'd only been out there about two hours. (laughs) And they were hurting so much. I couldn't do it. I couldn't cry. But I've never experienced anything. Like, you got to understand, I'm a California kid. I had never experienced cold and snow like this. And so I was just like, man, it was horrible. But again, that was my first ski experience. And I probably didn't ski again for, I don't know, 10 years. You know what I mean? Okay. And so then, this is in upstate New York. So I only had about three ski experiences, but I never was good at anything. But then snowboarding, of course, I started learning about snowboarding. And I had an interest in it. And again, like I said, it wasn't until about 2004 that I went on a, my girlfriend at the time surprised me and took me on a date to Killington and got me a snowboard lesson. We both took snowboard lessons. And then that's where I got, you know, introduced to it. And then from there, I just kind of just hooked. And so back to the MBS, you know, interestingly, I had heard about, like, briefly, I heard about this thing, but I didn't really know. And then I was in Whistler and I met this woman on the mountain and she's Indian. And she was telling me, you know, we were talking and so she was like, so when do you ski with the Brotherhood? And I was like, the Brotherhood? Like, the brotherhood. You know what I mean? She's like, oh, and she's like, you don't know what the Brotherhood is? Oh, my God. You know, she was like, literally like, you don't know the Brotherhood? I was like, no. Nah. You know, she just couldn't believe a black man who was out here in Worcester by himself didn't know the Brotherhood. Like, nah, I never. So then she said, oh, you have to go. It's called National Brotherhood of Skiers. It's this, it's that. Oh, you got to do it. And so anyway, the next year, uh, no, I'm in Colorado, and I got some friends in Colorado. And these two sisters, they're locals, they grew up in Denver, and they were like, you need to come to the MBS. And I was like, oh, yeah, I heard about the MBS. I just heard about it, you know. And so they were like, yeah, you need to come. This is 2010. It was at Winter Park. So my first time at MBS was in 2010. So I've only been 10 years, and I've even been associated, connected with MBS. But that trip is when I went, and this was a mini summit, you know, this was a summit. And I was like, I mean, people was out dancing too short. I was like, what? I was like, okay, I found my tribe. You know what I mean? I mean, I was like all the way live, like, okay, this is it. And because I've been traveling a lot and snowboarding just on my own, you know, so I finally connected with folks. And then Mm -hmm. it was just like rapid. It was really, really quick. And then I kind of got known as the guy in Japan. I was like the only black man in all of the MBS who lived in Japan. And I hadn't experienced Niseko yet, but I did. I've been familiar with Japan's you know, skiing and snowboarding. That's how I got into it in a nutshell. It's interesting hearing both your stories about how you started skiing and boarding. Where I grew up in Mississippi, it's like black people didn't ski. Like white people in my high school went up skiing for spring break. I never thought about it till I moved to Charlotte and I joined the Breezers, the National Brotherhood of Skiers there, chapter there, just to meet people. I really wasn't interested in skiing. I I was new in town and was just trying to meet people. So I went to my first summit, 2002, actually, and I had the time of my life. But I used to only go like once a year. I didn't really start skiing on a regular basis until maybe 2016 when I bought skis. I said I need to put them to use. 
How many days do you guys actually get on the mountain, average? Myself, as of recent, I've been averaging between 2019 and 20. I got about 16 days, but I used to average around 23 to 30 days on the mountain, me personally. Yeah, I've had one, two years of 30 plus days in my time I've been doing it. But for the most part, I would say just on average, you know, last several years, I think that maybe 16, 17, I would say that. I mean, we'd like to do more, but it's just like, even with our trips. Now, if you include our trip, like if we on a year that we do a trip, we always do at least five to six days on the mountain, just in one of those trips. And then usually I do two or three more trips at different points. And if, it, you know, I'll go to Summit or something, and that's another five days. So, you know, I would say on a good year, 20 days, but generally probably between 15 and 20, 12, you know, somewhere around there. Your last trip, what made you decide to go from Japan to the French Alps? That was one of those, give the people what they want. You know, we have been coming to Japan on three consecutive, three trips every other year. Here's the other thing. Even though we've been doing these trips every other year, in between those years, we've had folks come to Japan. That's not really kind of a full-on official big trip, but it's just enthusiasts. It's a backcountry expert level trip. Exactly. And so those trips, you know, so we have some folks that have been here five times, like five years in a row. And so because of the, you know, us doing these, people start saying, well, what, what are some other places we can go? You know, what are some other things we can do? And so the about the Ranch trip grew out of a desire. Folks, a lot of people would raise interest in going to Europe. Myself hadn't been to Europe. Had you been, Leon? No. Yeah, so we were both. Yeah, this is both for even us. It was our first time going to Europe, in particular the Alps. So it was exciting. It was a new frontier, new vista for us. The idea of Paris and what it offered, you know, as the city of lights and as a destination, you know, one of the popular destinations in the world. We figured, you know, wow, this would be kind of cool to combine the two, both going to the French Alps and having some experience and time in Paris. And so that's where that came from, people's kind of desire and demand. So when you talk about planning and logistics mm -hmm. for this Paris trip, this was extremely difficult because we hadn't, you know, we had to basically guard our new relationships, mm -hmm. had to work with new partners, you know, having to have that trust factor. So it took a lot of extra work on the back end to actually make this trip happen for Paris and for the Valtherins. And having a group our size and trying to find the lodging because everybody wanted to be together, that was very challenging also. So there's not like a lot of options because they cater more towards like a boutique types of hotels that may have max capacity of 30 to 40 people. And some are even smaller than that. They dwell on like chateaus and chalets, you know, that's what they're more suited for. Well, that trip was the highlight of 2020 before the COVID pandemic. So I'm glad that I got to experience it this year. You know, so the highlight for you, so what was the your biggest takeaway? What was your highlight for the Valtherin's Paris part? The whole trip, I had never been before. Paris was fun. I love sightseeing and I love going places I've never been before. 
But the mountain was great. It's just to ski in a different place, skiing with different people. And we had a guide every day, which I keep in contact with him via Instagram. So he actually teaches year round. He teaches in Chile in normal times in the summertime. So it was just like lifetime experience. It's just something that I would never probably go and do that trip by myself. I mean, I travel by myself. I ski by myself. I go to Canada. I think that's the farthest I've gone by myself. But I would have never experienced that with all those people. It's like that's nothing I would have ever experienced if I didn't know or had connections with Epic Life. So what about the party at the bridge? That was so much fun. And I'm not a partier, not really, but that was so much fun. (laughs) That was so much fun. Dancing on stage, it was so much fun. That was so much fun. (laughs) You couldn't tell if you were in the party or not. (laughs) (laughs) That was so much fun, yeah. You know, it's interesting, like, this year, Leon and I, we've both been talking about how this year, you know, we know 2020 has just been like a year like no other, you know, with all the pandemic and you know, the political turmoil and just everything that's been going on, right? And first of all, the time and effort to plan this trip is just like ridiculous. Like people have no idea just how much time it took. The We're trying to coordinate train travel from Paris to Valterins. In the middle of a strike. Mm, oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Right? In the middle of a major strike, you know, where all public transportation is shut down, right? And this is months leading up. I mean, it was like Paris, I mean, was having some of the biggest labor struggles that it's seen in a lot of years. And so, again, we're trying to plan this trip where we give people this experience because, you know, we both have this sort of like vision. We're like, man, it'd be so cool, uh, you know, to go to Paris and do X, Y, and Z and then get on a train and ride the train up to the Alps. You know, that was like our thing. We were just so excited about this idea of like, you know, the train out. Then we find out in the process, there's all kinds of ways to get to the Alps, right? People take trains, people fly, they take a bus. And anyway, so a lot of different logistics. And then, of course, with the strike and all the uncertainty that sort of that we entered this trip with. I mean, it was like last minute stuff was changing and, you know, and then and so forth. So we were actually even advised to skip Paris by mm-hmm. one of our liaisons, people, mm-hmm. persons over in Paris, because of, strike. because of the strike. They said that they had no idea if it was going to be rioting, and they said where we were staying like a few days prior to that. Like, I think it was the week prior to that. There was like a major march right down the street in front of our hotel. So it was all sorts of warning signs for us. Yeah, to not do it. And then, of wow. course, you know, for this trip to start, and we have this really wonderful time in Paris and then head up to Val Thurens. And literally when we get there that evening in Val Thurens and we're at dinner, that's when we learn of Kobe Bryant's death. And that was like a yep. major, like, what? I'm a L.A. Lakers fan and I'm lifetime, you know, folk when, person. When it comes to that kind of stuff, it's so it was just like, and we were all, yeah. what? You know, like it was just mm-hmm. like such an unbelievable blow to be on a, wonderful vacation, having all of this fun, and then to see an icon of this magnitude so young, like, you know, passed in a helicopter Tragic. along yeah. with his daughter and seven others. It was just like unbelievable and just surreal, you know, and having to literally, I mean, I remember I had to like gather myself, you know, continue to lead and organize and mm-hmm. formalize this trip and enjoy it because it was a big investment. It was like 
you had like the gloss in your eyes. You were like in a trance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a few hours at that time, you was like basically punch drunk. Couldn't put in the words. You couldn't basically grapple what just happened. You know, and then we kind of proceeded. And it all ended up coming together and being a wonderful trip. But it was just something, just I'm sort of giving context for 2020. And then, of course, after the trip, literally weeks later, the pandemic starts to set in. And Mm -hmm. sort of hot spots in Europe, you know, is really in a major place with Spain, of course, and Italy, mm-hmm. you know, Paris, and all the shutdowns. And we're just like, man, we had all this trip planned. Just imagine if we couldn't have done all these things. Like, you know, yeah. so there was the blessing, you know, and the grace that we had collectively. And then, of course, for us to all be shut down and everyone having a shelter in place, and we're all negotiating work and family and work-life balance and isolation and all things that come along with this and, you know, people not being able to travel. Because mm-hmm. I had another trip planned. They canceled our trip. Our yeah, y'all had trip. a camping trip planned. We were planning this major trip. Yeah, major outdoor excursion, our first one. And again, what people wanted to say, hey, man, we need to start doing some summer stuff. And I mean, we had the best trip plan. I mean, just, oh, man, it was it's going to be phenomenal. And then Borders are shut down, pandemic, nobody can travel. And so we had to quickly, that was a funny one because I was, uh, <laughs> we were collective. I, I put it out there, you know, literally trying to live optimistically, right? And so mm-hmm. I was like, okay, we got this trip planned. And so people hit us up, but they're like, oh man, I'm in. Here's my deposit, right? And so we got this deposit. <laughs> and I was like, Leon, it's on, man. We about to do this. So so what did Leon say when you said his own? What did I say? <laughs> what did you say? You said, I, said uh, no, I don't think so, Yogi. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said oh, nah, man, you know, we're going to make this happen, man. It's, you know, so then about five days after we had had this conversation, I realized, and he's like, I said, hey, man, how are the deposits coming? We getting any more deposits? <laughs> um, he's like, those deposits really are slowing down. <laughs> This is the funniest point. I like came at him like I had a eureka moment. I said, hey, man, you know, I think that these deposits coming because uh, maybe this pandemic is really. <laughs> what? Of course, the pandemic. <laughs> so before he hit the pandemic, he said, Leon, I don't know if this new like advertisement promotion on IG is helping, man. He said, I think something's wrong with your account, man. I think something's wrong with the account. I said, dude, it's not the account. He's like, it's not, it's not the account. It's, yeah. It's not the account. <laughs> he was trying to go all the way to the end. I mean, we was literally going to try to push, push, push. And it was just like, we had to say, ah, no, we got to pull the cord on this. It's not Because remember, you got to remember, like, historically, like, in March. Yeah, July, we thought it would have been. We were thinking, like, okay, okay. we yeah. done maybe in May, June. You know, like, like oh, no, we'll be able to. And then it just started getting in New York, started just going out of control. And, mm-hmm. after, you know, as we kind of inched, we like, wait a minute, this ain't happened. It's not going to even be over, you know, because I remember people telling me, yeah, their bosses at work said, oh, you yeah, don't cancel your summer plans. This will probably be two months and we'll be good. Mm-hmm. You know, well, one last question, although you probably won't answer. 2022, uh, where are you guys thinking <laughs> the next trip will be? 
<laughs> well, we definitely want to stay tuned. I mean, you know, we don't know in terms of the winter destination at this point. We definitely want to, that summer destination that we had in place in terms of British Columbia and the whitewater rafting and all other stuff that we wanted to do. We definitely hope to be able to pull that trip off if the conditions, you know, allow for that. And then we also have some other ideas about some other mountains and other destinations, you know, so we feel like, you know, we're ready. We're poised and ready. And we know that folks are eager to get out. So God willing, people get through this and we are able to, people have their house in order financially and health, you know, because Mm -hmm. unfortunately we mentioned the MBS and it's important to recognize that, you know, I was also part of going to the summit in Sun Valley, Idaho this past Mm -hmm. year. And unfortunately, this ended up being a hot spot for the pandemic. And we had lots of people, you know, contract COVID. Yeah, I was one of them, actually. Yeah. And then we also, unfortunately, had some fatalities. Mm -hmm. Several people who got it and unfortunately were not able to get through at the hospitals and passed away. So it's been a really, you know, harrowing year that's hit our community Individually, we've all been hit different ways, but also mm-hmm. our collective ski community, that's been a real blow. And so the MBS is canceled this year, like so many things, and this might be the first time. I don't know. Yeah. The time since it started. Yeah. Yeah, since the MBS started, that they actually had to just totally cancel the summit and so forth. So we got a lot to feel good about, but also keep in mind, you know, the challenges that we've all endured. So as soon as there is a viable vaccine, We'll be ready to start moving onto our next phases and we'll be releasing because, you know, what we envision is to have a summer and a winter trip for both enthusiasts as soon as we get this fog lifted off of us with COVID. Okay. And the other beautiful thing, too, is that I'm very optimistic because, like yourself, we are like, you know, as a physician and as somebody who's been on the front line, really having some understanding of COVID and travel during this period who had the virus and gotten through it. We got a lot of good folks like yourself that are part of our community. And I think that given people's discipline and commitment to travel and so forth, not only if there's a vaccine available, but also in terms of, I really feel confident that we can put in place certain protocols that also heighten the safety measures for our group. You know, if that's pre-testing before getting them. I had to, Mm -hmm. I came back to Japan. I had to get a test within 72 hours of getting my flight. And then I had to be tested when I arrived. And so, you know, like there's protocols that we can also put in place to give people greater confidence. Because even after we come out of this, you know, consumer confidence has to be restored. Yes, true. Well, everybody's not adventurous and ready to jump on an airplane, even when it feels safe. So Mm -hmm. we got to still figure out ways to ensure that as we move and phase back into collective community activity, how do we put things in place? And I feel like we got the brains and the know-how to be able to do that. We'll be leaning on people in our community to help us with that process. Well, thank you guys for taking time to talk with me and my listeners. Any last minute words about Epic Life or anything you want to share? Well, first of all, from Benona myself, in behalf of Epic Life, we want to thank you for giving us an opportunity to basically profile and tell you about our company and what and how we've been able to move through these COVID environment and being able to move through helping people, you know, give the people what they want. 
So we want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk to your people and your platform. That wraps up this episode of Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Please, if you already haven't, download Running is Cheaper Than Therapy podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or however you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or possible show topics, please email Running is Cheaper Than Therapy, OLB, Omaha Love Brown at gmail.com. Again, that is Running is Cheaper Than Therapy. O as in Omaha, L as in love, B as in brown at gmail.com. Dr. Brown can also be reached via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Handle We OUI Life L I V E. We OUI Love L O V E. Again, We OUI Life L I V E. We OUI Love. Thank you and please tune in again.